Welcome to Cape Up. This is Jonathan Capehart. Now, last week, we talked with Tom Perez about his run for DNC chair. This week, Congressman Keith Ellison of Minnesota discusses how he envisions the job and how Ms. McGillicuddy figures prominently in his plans. You don't know who she is, do you? Well, you're going to find out right now. Congressman Ellison, thank you very much for being on the podcast today. Hey, great to be here, Jonathan. Thanks. So... You're already a member of Congress, so you're in public service already. Why on earth do you want to be the chairman of the Democratic National Committee, arguably one of the most thankless jobs in American politics? Well, because I don't want to be a blue dot in a red sea. At this point, man, we didn't just lose the presidential election to the worst candidate ever. We have lost a thousand elections lost about 950-some state legislative seats, a lot of governors, secretaries of state, attorneys general. In fact, Democrats since 2008 have took the single most brutal beating ever in our history. When I got to Congress in 2006, uh, we didn't have the presidency, but we had both houses of Congress, and we were ascendant. We took the presidency in 2008, so we had 60 votes in the Senate, a majority and we had the presidency, and we were doing well around state legislatures all over the place. And everything has changed. And now we're in danger of becoming a coastal party. But, you know, there's a lot of hope, though, Jonathan. I really want to say there's Democrats all over this country doing great things. And here in this Trump era, you know, we have amazing energy on the street. Uh, the labor movement is ready to move out. We have uh, the what about almost 4 million people. Uh, participate in the Women's March. So if we can convert all of this energy we have now, all this what I think is progressive energy, we can convert that into electoral gains and we can uh, really set things right. But that's why I'm willing to leave Congress to do, to be the to be the chair of the DNC. So you said something very interesting, which is one of the three criteria that I think the next DNC chair should have. You just said that you're willing to leave Congress to take on this job full time. Right. And so one of the one of the criteria criteria I have is the person must do the job full time. The other two are the person must be able to raise money for the right. party. And the third is the person has to have shown an ability to win races. Are those three those three criteria fair? I hope so, because I'm strong in all three. I mean, I have decided to leave Congress. I don't want to. I love the representing the people of the 5th Congressional District. It's a tremendous, tremendous honor to do that. Uh, serving my neighbors, I can't think of anything better to do. But this, to me, uh, is an occasion where if I'm able to raise that money and win elections, maybe my skill set could be used to help a bigger number of people. So in this particular DNC race, I've clearly raised the most money of anyone. And uh, it's been small dollar money. It hasn't been just chunks from big donors. It's been, we've gotten over 25,000 separate donations. And then I've gotten people elected. I mean, we don't have any statewide Republicans in Minnesota. Our governor, Mark Dayton, Democrat, both of our senators, Secretary of State, Attorney General, all of them Democrats. And a big chunk of the reason is that the 5th Congressional District, which I represent, give such an outsized portion of the vote 
to make sure that no statewide Republican can win. So, for example, I've uh, increased turnout in my district. 2006, uh, we were the lowest turnout district in the state of Minnesota. Now we're the highest. And that means that people running statewide can count on our vote to really spike in the fifth. And that helped keep Minnesota blue. The fact is, is that, you know, from living in Minnesota for four years, we're right along that northern band with Wisconsin and Michigan. Mm-hmm. And they fell to Trump. Minnesota didn't. It came very close, though. But they didn't. And that's the key. We didn't. And as a matter of fact, even down ballot, which is probably more important. You know, I'm really proud of a young lady named Erin May Quaid. She's an African-American gay millennial. She married her wife a few years ago, and she ran in a white, predominantly white suburb. And some people told her, girl, you can't win over there. <laughs> and But, you know, but I said, look, Erin, you know, you can do it. And so she ran. She, when I met her, she told me she wanted to run for office. I said, we're going to make this happen. We, you know, we put her in positions to make decisions, to do things, to gain some great experience. And now she's representative Aaron McQuaid. You've added a, a fourth criteria there, which you, you've lumped under ability to ability to win races. But from what I hear, it sounds like you are somebody who is recruiting talent. Oh, yeah. We, you got to build that bench. You need that pipeline, man. And, and the thing is, you need folks to run, but you also need people who may not want to run, but want to run campaigns, want to do communications, want to raise money. Because, you know, it's a whole team, you know. I mean, in many ways, politics is like a TV broadcast. You may have one person in front of the camera, but you got a whole bunch of people working the camera, oh, yeah. writing the script, doing the, you know, it's a lot. Of, it's a whole big thing. And and so, uh, yeah, we you got to build that pipeline. You know, you got to build talent and you got to let, get, let folks fail up. You got to let them screw up and then help them figure out what they did wrong and give them another shot. And we've been doing that now for 10 years in Congress and then four years in the state house before that. What did the party get wrong in the last election? Was it message? Was it candidate? Was it just that the country was too angry to even pay attention to the Democratic nominee? Was it a combination of all those things or something else? I think we did four basic things wrong that are pretty clear and obvious. One is the Democratic Party should always be the party that stands with the aspiring working people of America. 56% of all Americans have less than $1,000 in the bank. And those folks who want to see their kids have a future, want to retire one day, want to earn a lease and live in now, hope to, if they, can get, if they get sick, they can see a doctor, they haven't been doing well. And the Democratic Party, for the most part, has been fighting for them, but not, but on things like trade, we haven't been clear on that. We have been unclear on how globalization is impacting working Americans. So I think our message has got to be much clearer that we are solidly on, on the side of those 56% who hoping and praying that the carburetor on the car doesn't go out and that the plant doesn't close. The second thing is if we believe that everybody counts and everybody matters, then we've got to talk to everybody. And when we abandoned that 50-state strategy and went more just for the swing states, we made an awful error because even if those swing states can get you an electoral victory, it's all premised on um, nothing happening that you don't expect. 
And, of course, this year we didn't expect Trump and we lost big time. But, you know, an election is the second most important reason to campaign. The most important reason to campaign is to build community. That's that's the real reason. You know, at the end of the day, elections give us a chance to talk to people we don't know. And when we stop doing that, people, you know, it's like if you want a friend, you, you better be one. And we said, well, we're not really interested in connecting with you. We just want to win elections. So we're going to talk to likely voters in swing states and during the presidential year. And as a result, people just checked out. Forget the people who voted against us in the last election. What about the people who just didn't show up at all? The third reason, you know, we, we are so incredibly siloed. We really have to figure out how to unite all of the, you know, there's multiple Democratic organizations. There's the House Democrats. There's the Senate Democrats. There's these municipal Democrats. There's the governors. There's all these groups. And we only now are we really starting to have what could be a unified coordinated campaign, a national coordinated campaign. We need to really figure out how to consolidate our efforts so that we can have a unified brand and so that we can communicate and we don't have to compete over volunteers and we don't have to compete over donors. And then the last thing I think that we did that's really a mistake is we over rely on television. Now look, I definitely believe there's an important spot in campaigning with television advertising. But I think the most effective thing we can do is field campaigning, relationship building, talking to people face to face, nose to nose, chop to chop. Television advertising is incredibly expensive. And if we just took 10% of it and put it in the field, man, we could do wonders. And then connected to that one, subpart A, Mm -hmm. (laughs) is data analytics. We use polling and data analytics as opposed to checking out a form based on a conversation. So here's the thing. So if you do a poll, you're gonna it's gonna be biased in favor of whoever you get and a biased against whoever you don't get on the phone. But if you do a door if you're door to door knocking, if you're knocking and you're talking to people and you have a relationship, that will first of all, people are much more likely to be honest with you, much more likely to engage you, and you c- capture that data, and then you can rely on that data and you have a much better idea, you add a bunch of consumer stuff into that data set, and now you actually know what's going on. You know, but people were in, in Wisconsin and Michigan, they were telling the national campaign, things are not as good as you might think. Mm-hmm. They were saying it. I was, on, I was on the Stephanopoulos show, I made the comment that look, Trump is, has a lot of momentum, and that we really better figure out uh, you know, that this guy, this guy could be the nominee. Folks just cracked up, you know, and uh, and I made that point, you know, and the reason I sensed that Trump could win is because just driving around Minnesota, seeing Trump signs, seeing big rallies, and that kind of gave me a sense that this guy's not a joke, you know, and at least in the minds of the people who are coming to those rallies, he's not a joke, and he was touching on some kind of a nerve to draw them out, so um, at the end of the day, uh, we've got to be in touch and on the ground. So it's interesting you you mentioned the comment about um, driving around Minnesota, seeing the signs, um, the over-reliance of the Clinton campaign on analytics. As from, from my own reporting, I know there were people on the campaign telling Brooklyn 
they need signs, they need surrogates, they need all these things. And the word that would come back was the analytics say we're fine. Right. In Wisconsin, in Pennsylvania, in Michigan, right. in Minnesota. Right. Uh, and so from all that we have been able to tell from listening to you, it's not that at data and analytics are bad. It's just that they are bad when you rely on them solely and completely cut out the person to person contact. Absolutely. You know, see, here's the thing. Democrats have to come to grips with the idea that the Democratic Party doesn't exist for Democrats. It is for the American people. The chance to connect with Miss McGillicuddy and listen to her. That's really what should drive us. Because if you look at Miss McGillicuddy, she she's been pouring coffee at the Denny's she works at for years, but she believes her daughters can be a doctor. But it's so expensive and the debt's so high and she barely has any money in retirement because she hasn't been making no money because she works for a tip wage and the tips don't come in. She don't get paid too much. She's hoping that this pain in her knees is nothing serious. Could be arthritis. You know, but she doesn't know. And her sister died from breast cancer. And she's like, well, should I get a double mastectomy because I cannot afford to, you know, get breast cancer? I mean, these things are on people's minds. And then she's like, I've been pouring the coffee at this, you know, serving at this Denny's for years. Hope the plant doesn't close down because then all the workers who come here, they won't be coming here. But maybe the plant did close down and people go from making 22 bucks an hour to making 13. So now they're not buying the big, the big breakfast no more. They're they're just getting a couple of eggs and sauce. You know what I mean, mm-hmm. sausage. So, mm-hmm. I mean, it's just really sort of this. The, but we don't know that because we are not deliberately get. We're not building relationship now. Miss McGillicuddy might only be able to give us five bucks a month out of her check, but if she's giving that five bucks to the Democratic Party because she is absolutely convinced that we are going to kick down doors for her, then she will. She will get donate that money. Maybe a little extra if she has it. She'll tell her friends to do it. She'll go to her church and she'll talk about how she's proud to be a Democrat. Well, we've got to understand that human story, man. It's so critical. And they ought to have a party that stands up for them. Because you can make damn sure that the folks in the country club, that she can only get in if she's taking an extra shift at catering, uh, they're, they're good. They got a party, <laughs> you know. They got a party that is relentlessly trying to cut taxes, shrink government, uh, cut regulation. And we in our party, we say we're for working people, but and we usually are, but we have to be much more focused on, you know, how globalization is affecting our, our constituent base. How the the you know, the tilting of the American economy against working people over the last forty years. I mean, over the last 40 years, man, wages have flattened. Unionization has decreased. You know, uh, trade policies don't seem to work for Americans. They work for big business people. They don't work for regular people. In the example of Ms. McGillicuddy comes two questions, big questions um, that I have for you about the party. Right. One, is it possible to have a Democratic Party that plays as well on the coasts, New York, California, as it does in Wisconsin, Colorado, Missouri, Minnesota? And then in that answer, talk about this sudden focus 
on white working class. That the Democratic Party, after the election, just decided that it was because the party ignored, forgot about, didn't speak to the white working class that its history of being a big tent party should be cast aside and focused solely on that group of people. You know, the, the Democratic Party has always stood on two legs. One leg is the leg of respect. And that is, you know, the fact that the Democratic Party is about social justice. It should be and ought to be. The other leg has been about economic justice. Sort of like one leg of the Democratic Party is FDR and the fight against, um, uh, you know, the Depression. And the other leg is maybe MLK or, you know, maybe, you know, Johnson, uh, LBJ, you know, and this fight and this struggle for civil and human rights. That's who we are. That's who we've been. Uh, we made a definitive choice when uh, Hubert H. Humphrey uh, and his, at the at the in the at the 1948 uh, Philadelphia Democratic Convention said we're going to walk out of the the dark shadows of states' rights into the bright sunshine of human rights. All the Southern segregationists walked out, and uh, you had a brand new Democratic Party after that. And it was a it wasn't immediate, but within 20 years it was clear that the Democratic Party was on the side of liberty and justice for all, and that means everybody. So this question of white working class versus the rising America electorate is really a false choice. It's a false choice because, hey, who's to say Miss McGillicuddy is not a lesbian? She could be. Every single thing I said could still be true, but she's married to a woman. Nothing changes. Her daughter could be trying to become a doctor. She could be worried about her knees. And she could go home to her wife. Doesn't change anything. She could be black. Why can't she be black? She could be anything. McGillicuddy makes you think, oh, maybe she's a white working class woman of Irish descent. I know plenty of black people of Irish descent. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So my point mm -hmm. is, my point is, Miss McGillicuddy, in my mind, is just sort of this regular person. She, if it, she also needs to be treated with respect. And here, if you are a white working class person, you have civil rights. If you're a woman, you for sure better to be worried about civil rights. If you're 55, 45-year-old white male, why aren't you worried about civil rights when you know that they just hired a 22-year-old guy to do your job because they don't, because, you know, age discrimination, right, or disability discrimination? I mean, we all have to worry about being respected and treated fairly for who we are. So this is a false choice they're trying to present. And here's the funny thing, Jonathan. You go talk to the white working class and they say, ah, oh, Democrats ain't talking to us. Well, you go, you, you go to Reverend Bowen's church, African-American church, and you sit down with him and the average income of his parishioners is probably 30 grand a year, right? And Reverend Bowen will tell you, all oh, them Dems, don't, they don't come here until it's election time. So my point is, who are we actually talking to? The white working class thinks we're talking to the Latinos and the African-Americans and the gays. And the gays, Latinos, and African-Americans think we're talking to the white working class. We're to Look, we got to talk to people. You know, as, you, as you're speaking, I'm sort of, it's just dawning on me now that at no point in any of your, of your answer did you use your own your own success in your own congressional district to make 
the case for your own candidacy for DNC chair. You're the first Muslim elected yep. to, the, to the United States Congress. Your district is predominantly white. 63%. You are in, in Minnesota, a predominantly white state. About 90 some percent, <laughs> yeah. And so w- why not tout your own successes in this race for DNC chair to say, hey, look, I have proven with my own, just my own career so far in politics that I can do for the national party what I've done in my own district. Well, I need to get you as a consultant um, on my <laughs> political career. You, you know, you're probably right. I think I'm like one of my dispositional weaknesses as a politician is I'm not that good at bragging on myself. You know, I guess the real reason is there's this sense that I have that none of this is about me and that I'm inconsequential to the situation. I'm just trying to help. You know what I mean? And so maybe I should tell my story more. I think that's probably good advice. But I just, um, you know, when I, whenever I hear candidates talking about I was born on the other side of the track and my family had it so hard and I overcame all that and look at me, it just it just feels a little self-indulgent to me. I don't criticize them for it. It's probably smart. If I did it, I'd probably be better off. One last question, because I know you've got a campaign to run and you've got real work to do. But the next DNC chair, should the next DNC chair focus more on bully pulpit? In that, I mean going after the president, going after after Republicans, or should the next DNC chair focus more on party building, building building the bench of candidates from school board all the way up to federal offices um, as a way of strengthening and rebuilding the party? Without a doubt, party building, without any question. Hey Amen. This is a flannel shirts and jeans job, not a suit, tie, makeup, lights, camera, action job. This is a job that means that you're gonna have to go to the VFW and the union and the and the American Legion, and you gotta knock doors and go into those school cafeterias after hours and meet with people, church basements. That's that. This is that job. That job. It is fundraising, so you're gonna have to go to some fancy spots, I guess. So I will be bringing a suit along with me, but mostly I'm going to be going to campuses, talking to students, talking to union workers, talking to rec- workers union or not, talking to you know veterans. That's what it is. That's what the chair is supposed to do. Now, I do believe the chair needs to do his or her part of taking on Trump and speaking and telling the Democratic story beyond Trump. But I think mostly what the chair needs to do is marshal an army of speakers who can give a give a message uh, of the Democratic Party. So, like, if I'm if I'm if I'm chair, I would uh, I would tap Tom uh, Perez and Sally Boynton Brown and Pete Buttigieg and Jamu Green and many many other people, and I would tell the comms department, you guys need to be booking them all the time on on what we what we're talking about this week now i would do some too i wouldn't bow out but i would think it would be more important to um marshal a cadre a group of people who could tell the democratic story and then you know we got to train folks at the local level and book people on local radio to talk and book people on with local uh, editorial boards to talk because let me tell you man punditry is not going to get us back in the majority 
It's not. I lied. I have one more question. Okay. If President Trump were to walk into this room right now and you had two minutes with him, what would you say? I'd say Donald Trump, I'm going to tell you right now, we're going to fight you everywhere, every block, every corner. You have a chance to do what you promised, which is to work on jobs and fair trade and infrastructure. And we're going to give you the chance to do that. You have, you have a chance to drain the swamp, which you've already failed to do. But I'm telling you now that if you monetize the presidency, violate the Constitution, build walls, ban people because of their religion, we will give you no quarter. And we will organize every inch of this country to make sure that you are held accountable every step of the way. I don't have any illusions about you, Donald Trump. I know that, you know, talking to you is probably not going to change anything about you because you're a master um, manipulator and marketer and a a reality talk show personality, a reality show personality. Uh, But I do want you to know that uh, we are going to mobilize the nation against you and we might be able to use you to organize us for a brand new America that is freer, more equal, more prosperous for everyone. Congressman Keith Ellison, 5th Congressional District of the great state of Minnesota. That's right. And candidate for the chairmanship of the Democratic National Committee. Thank you very much. Thanks, Jonathan. Great time. And and thanks for uh, writing about my mom one time. She appreciates that. (laughs) Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher. You know what? Do me a favor. Subscribe and then rate and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ.